This is CliffCentral.com. Oh yeah, nice little vocally intro this week for the Bounce Show. Welcome to it. Monday, the start of the week and the start of just getting on track again with all the sporting attractions. What an amazing weekend that was. And of course, because the Masters, the Masters is that beautiful time of the year where the seasons change and the golf year officially starts. And uh, wow, so much action took place last night at the Masters that I have a full feature where I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to try condense a few. There were so many, so many stories. Just going into that Sunday, there was pretty much in everyone's mind one winner. Well, it turned out that maybe the seventh or eighth winner in everyone's mind actually came through. It was just fascinating. It was sports at its absolute best. And why we kind of watched this game, I guess. Um, one of the coolest things I've, I've seen in quite some time. Uh, I do the, as you know, here on Cliff Central, I do the sports on the Gareth Cliff Morning Show. And we got a message this morning from someone who's never watched golf before saying, Ben, thanks so much for being kind of strangely obsessed with this tournament. I actually watched the whole thing despite having an early Monday morning. So if I can just achieve one thing and get people to watch golf and enjoy golf, then I think I've achieved something this year. So this is me. Happy, happy, happy days. Um, yeah, I, I should probably stop right now because anything I do post here can't actually match that high. Anyway, I got lots to match that high, hopefully. Dan from Conquer Sports is back this week. We took a bit of a break with the insightful features from him because we had uh, Cricket World Cup and there was Super Rugby and that kind of stuff. So, you know, we always try to vary it here, but always go back to the A-team when the game really, really needs it. So he'll be talking about speed and sprinting and the pinnacles that we can reach and what are the the limits and boundaries to the, the art of speed and, and just running fast. Big Masters, big catch-up, as I said, and then we got the highlights from the weekend. One such highlight, and uh, just leads into the headlines, was the retiring of such an incredible sportsman. It was, of course, Manny Pacquiao. Now, Manny, he's had his detractors. He says lovers and his haters. And I'm not just talking about his music. But Manny Pacquiao was an incredible boxer. Really, really incredible boxer. But this weekend, he had his last fight. Which makes his music kind of more emotional than ever. Oh, especially when we go into another chorus with no breath. So there you have it, Manny Pacquiao. His boxing career is done. His career record of 57 wins with 38 KOs, 6 losses and 2 draws. Countless songs that no one ever heard. And of course, he's got many other accolades. And the fans love him. Listen to that. Yep. None of them paid for the ticket to watch that performance that day. So Pacquiao was one of the best pound-for-pound boxers. He'll be remembered as much. He was, I think, the the, the, the boxer of, of the decade. Uh, definitely in the turn of the century. And one of the greatest boxers of the century. Uh, unfortunately, his big pinnacle would have been the fight versus Floyd Money Mayweather. But it never happened. It came about six, seven years too late. There was a whole thing about that he wouldn't fight against Mayweather because he wouldn't give blood or take a certain kind of drug test. He thought it was invasive and it was insulting. And the fight never happened. When it did, well, they were both just, uh, it was crap. It was one of the most boring, overhyped TV spectacles of all time. But enough about Manny. I think uh, we all get the picture. He sang a little bit. He boxed a lot. And uh, he made lots of money in the Philippines and that kind of stuff. He's like an absolute hero where he lives. And good for him too. I think he was in the streets of Manila on the age of like 14, homeless for a while, just boxing for whatever he could. So he's definitely a self-made man, so you can only admire that, despite all these other things. 
and how he doesn't really like gay people. Anyway, rugby from the weekend. Get into our headline section of the show today. We've got so much to, add, to uh, get in. Dan is here in the studio. He's making notes on what's going to be an enthralling chat with him in around sort of 25 to 30 minutes. But the Hong Kong Sevens, well, the Blitzbox, they still haven't won that tournament. Try as they may, they just can't seem to do it. It's really frustrating because they've got a good side. They're so well balanced. They've got speed. They've got pace. They've got experience. And ultimately, they've got a lot of attacking, I don't know, um, what's the word, sense. But, mm, sorry. They seem to know what to do in, in these big tournaments, and they've got a great record. Have any of you World Series holders once, though, as far as like the whole cumulative thing? But still, they're always going to be a class side to beat. And when they go into the semis against New Zealand and Hong Kong, you really thought, okay, this is probably going to be it. They may be able to break their jinx. Well, yeah, that was kind of how it should have been. At the end of regulation play, Cecil Africa was meant to kind of combine with Sibelis Natla out wide. They just failed to use the width and mix up. Extra time ensued. And uh, the ref, oh, you know, there's just something so horrible about talking about refs because as a South African people always go, oh, you're bitching again. Ah, stop moaning. But it just seems uncanny how these things just keep happening to them. If you're going to award a yellow card for a high tackle, you give a penalty, right? Uh, I don't know. If you are as a fair with the rules as maybe you could be like me, um, but that seems like a pretty golden one. If you're, if you're a referee, no matter what form of the game, foul play equals penalty. The yellow, red cards, that kind of stuff, that's a secondary thing to deem how severe the foul play was. Either way, team gets a penalty. Not to be, Blitzbockers went out of that one. New Zealanders used the width, scored a great try. They got into the final, but the final was 21-7 in favor of Fiji. These guys love this tournament. They are just, such, inc- such an incredible force at the Hong Kong Sevens, which means they've now extended their lead at the top of the standings. So they are on 128 points, New Zealand's second on 123, and then South African Sevens are on 122 points. This, of course, is the Olympic year. So basically, this whole thing is like one big road to the Olympics. And Singapore is the next stop. So very much still in the reckoning here are the Blitzbox. Um, yeah, it's just so frustrating. We think they could have won easily in Wellington. They won in Cape Town, of course. Uh, Dubai, they were just generally outplayed. They didn't do so well there. Sydney, kind of the same thing again. Las Vegas, Vancouver, all coming close. But then again, in this is oh, the refereeing. Uh, uh. But still, these guys need to chill out a bit. They're not taking the opportunities, and it's going to cost them in the long run. Anyway, on to Super Rugby. Another enthralling weekend there. The Chiefs, they have a bye this coming weekend and a good thing for it too because they've been playing flat out for the last sort of five, six weeks and uh, just recording some scintillating victories. Against the Blues, you would have thought they were going to be comfortably um, victors there. Only six points in the end. The Blues were ahead for a great deal of the match and if it wasn't for, well, just the Chiefs just being a better side, I guess, they came back and 29-23 was the final score. Crusaders, they came back from a South African tour, a very successful one, and then on the way home, they stop off in Perth, which in the past has always been a bit of a sticky match for them, whether they're going away to SA or coming back. It's like that sort of halfway stop. Well, geographically not halfway, but you know what I mean. Uh, 2019 was the final score. Crusaders only narrowly got through them on that one. Stormers, they were very, very good on Friday night against the Sunwolves, scoring some of the best tries I've seen from the men in the blue and white and other sort of hoop things. 46-19 to the Sunwolves. They managed to get a guy sent off at the end there, which I thought was a bit dodgy. It was a yellow at best. It was just a bit of a late hit. And then the Hurricanes. They were 40-22 over the Jaguars. The Jaguars can take a while to settle in, I think. It's not just about getting together the best players in your country. There is so many different dynamics to make a good super rugby team, and I don't think they'll ever have played such hard, kind of fast rugby before. But like it's, They're a good side, the Argentines, when they get together at international level because they can play with structure, they can play an intelligent kicking match and rely on sort of brute force and the set pieces. But the Super Rugby is just such a different tournament. It really is just, I mean, fast is probably the best word to kind of go with it. Then we've got the upset of the weekend. That was the Reds versus the Highlanders. The Highlanders are a shit-hot team, to basically put it lightly. Uh, together with the Chiefs, you know, probably the best two sides so far in the tournament. Stormers maybe to a lesser degree, uh, maybe some Brumbies in there as well. But Highlanders were expected to win this one, even though they were away from home. But the Reds, good on you, Reds. Nothing really going for this team at all. 28-27, that is a real big result for them. The Lions went to Durban to take on the Sharks, which is always going to be a bit of a needle grudge match. It always is between these two teams. But the Sharks kind of just, how can I put this? It was like, I don't know, it was like 
the Lions are a current day side, right? They know what they're doing. They run the ball. They create pressure. They create opportunities for themselves. The Sharks, well, they get the ball and they run into players. It's kind of like watching the Springboks versus the All Blacks. It's, it's that bad. And Sharks, you got to deal with this reality. That's not even me being mean. The Lions are a good side to watch and full value for the 24-9 victory there. Even worse for the Sharks is that they've lost Marcel Kutsia now for the whole season. Not just a couple of weeks. It's the whole season he's gone now. Massive, massive impact in that loose trio, considering uh, the other guys, the Dupree brothers, are so young. To have someone like Marcel Kutsia is just absolutely vital. So they've had a bit of a, r- a rough run of last few weeks, plus now they go on tour and they've got three particularly difficult matches, but we'll get more into that next week. And then the Kings, well, back to losing ways, unfortunately. It was always going to be the sort of Cinderella ball last week against the Sunwolves, but this week, six points, and the Bulls with 38 points. So let's have a look at the standing. I know it's still early days. It's quite difficult to work out the standing because there's logs and there's sub-logs and that kind of stuff. And there's not even like an overall log because there doesn't need to be an overall log because you've got different conferences. Anyway, in the combined South African group, we've got the Stormers on top. They've played six matches. They've got 23 points. Good on you, Stormers. They've lost once. The Lions are next on 18 points. Then the Bulls are on... That doesn't make sense. Sorry, it is just one of those funny... um dual log things that where yeah anyway so the lions are on 18 the bulls are on 19 okay that does make sense there we go so those are the three teams at the moment in in qualification places for the south africans um in the australasian group now that's when you combine the aussies and new zealanders you've got the chiefs way out in front seven points sorry seven matches 29 points is massive brumbies are on 17 points after playing six but they top the aussie conference so they're going to second in the australasian group then you've got the Highlanders, they're on 23, Crusaders are on 22, and the Hurricanes are on 20. Those are all your teams at the moment who are in qualification areas. Just the one Aussie team, it does not look good. Huh? Four out of five of the New Zealanders are in that sort of section. And you've got to think, um, well, the Blues probably won't, won't eclipse the Brumbies. I think it's fair to say that, or the Rebels for that instance. But still, if your last team, if your worst team in the country is the Blues, you're not doing too too badly as a rugby nation goes. So that's your Super Rugby wrap for the weekend. Next up, we've got the English Premier League. What an exciting weekend that was. And it was kind of like, the further we got on now, the closer we get to just knowing that Leicester's going to win. So Arsenal, they were always dicking around with this mathematical chance of doing things here or there. Well, mathematical at best. We haven't got time to really get into this much further. And this there's a great clip I'm going to put out on Facebook later. Um, if you follow us, just go on to The Bounce on Facebook. You'll see our, my, my page. Uh, there's some really cool clips there from the Arsenal fans, the ever disgruntled Arsenal fans. They drew 3-3 with West Ham. They really needed, they needed all, all points there. They needed to win every single match, basically. So dropping two points there to West Ham, that's kind of them done. Watford 1-1 with Everton. Swansea City, they beat Chelsea. So it doesn't really make, make any difference whatsoever to Chelsea. They're about to get the Italian national coach to become their new coach. So whether they win now or not, it's not like they're going to make Europe, um, Pretty screwed all around, really. Southampton, they were 3-1 up against... Sorry, they won 3-1 over Newcastle United. Now, Newcastle, they've got Rafael Benitez as their new coach who came in there. That uh, Steve McLaren, I think his name was, the guy with the terrible bar rash and thinning hair. He went, and the team's fortunes have not changed. If anything, they got, they got worse. Crystal Palace won over Norwich. Aston Villa, they went down 1-2 to Bournemouth. Man City with a good win there, which makes them go closer to Arsenal in that third position. 2-1 over West Brom. Leicester, they beat Sunderland 2-0. So at that stage, they went 10 points clear. Spurs then came back and they beat Man United, who arrived late because of traffic. So the gap went back to 7 points. And Liverpool, well, they're not phased by any of this. They just went and hammered Stoke 4-1. So I have a look at that, that tab, sorry, that, um, that table right now. We'll see that Leicester are very much out in front. They have played 33 matches, 72 points. Spurs in the same amount of matches. They're on 65 and Arsenal, well, they've played one less match as of Man City, but they're just too far behind. 59, 57 points respectively. But that does make your top four because Man United are five points, sorry, four points below Man City after that in fifth. So you're not going to expect those top four to, I think, change. I think Man City, they're a, de- they're a decent side. They've got a good team. And they definitely will look to finish on the high here. And pretty much buoyed by some confidence they're getting from Europe at the moment. On to the other side of the coin, what do we got? So we've got three relegation teams. Aston Villa pretty much gone. Newcastle United, oh shame, these poor guys. It's such a massive stronghold of football in the middle of uh, of England, but they look like they're going to be going down if they don't change things drastically, which I guess is what they wanted when they got Rafael Benitez back into him. Ex-Real Madrid coach, 
ex-Liverpool coach, and he can't do anything really other than draw this team closer to being an ex-Premier League team. They've only had six wins the entire season, just six. Above, above them, just two points ahead of Sunderland, 27. Then there's a four-point gap, and then we've got Norwich City, Crystal Palace, Watford, and Everton. Essentially, that is your kind of realistic drawing pool, although I doubt, I really highly doubt anything below Norwich, Sunderland, Newcastle, United, Aston Villa. Those are your kind of four teams. The gap between them and Crystal Palace is a little bit higher, and I think the quality of team really is as well. There was some PSL action over the weekend, but I didn't really get into because Vitz and Sundowns only play on Wednesday. But there was some CAF Champions League action, and uh, that saw Sundowns in action against AS Vita. Now, that's the team from Uganda. Sundowns, unfortunately, going down there 1-0, but they've got a return leg in two weeks' time to see if they can still progress in the tournament because they have that's what you want as these teams. You know, There's big money in these things. You, do, you get this. You get new players, you get stronger, you win more stuff, you win more leagues, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so they need that. So that pretty much wraps up all your headlines. We're going to get into the golf section next. And we're going to start off by just setting the tone of how dramatic Sunday always is at the Masters. And uh, this is kind of what we look forward to. Oh, shit. Is that Manny still going? Sorry, Manny Pacquiao still in the background. So, Masters section after this. Then we got the Conquer Sports section with Dan coming after the Masters section. Sunday. A day of rest, but also around here come early April, more than occasionally a day of drama. No greater reminder of that than the anniversary we celebrate this week. 30 years ago, the Georgia Pines shook as a story unfolded that at daybreak, no one had even considered. Yes, sir! Jack Nicklaus's stunning sprint through the second nine to a sixth title wasn't the first Sunday drama here, and it wouldn't be the last. Master Sunday drama has been about the improbable, sometimes impossible shots, oh! which change the script and change a life. About long-delayed dreams finally realized, and those dashed. The reversals of fortune, perfect which turn on a dime that no one saw coming. There's always been something about this stage. Oh, what a shot! Incredible. Shakespeare couldn't come up with some of the stories told here. But maybe Edgar Allan Poe could. Oh! Master Sunday has seen the tales of redemption. Is it his time? and those of determination. Stories that warmed our hearts and made us cry. For such a gentle sport, played in such a beautiful place, the doings here on a certain Sunday can sure make your heart just about jump right out of your chest. All the world's a stage, the bard once said. None, though, quite like this one. That was Augusta on a Sunday. Eh? Gotta love how these Americans put together these absolute like extravaganzas. Now, they're just talking about a round of golf for some people, but no, it's Sunday. It's where it all comes together. It's where golf is at its most special. And I gotta agree with you. Like you can't help but get caught up with the hype of the Masters. Yeah, some people don't even like the event. They say it's just too plastic. It's too synthetic. It's too too contrived. It's just too perfect. Like, um, I read this article recently about, uh, Clifford Roberts. You know, he was the guy who put it all together with Bobby Jones back in the day. And, uh, he committed suicide, but he did it in the most perfect master's way because he lived on the estate, right? So he had an apartment in the, in the clubhouse. Now he put, uh, Augusta together because he wanted something that's just perfect. Like, it's the greatest thing in tribute of golf and tribute of champions. And he wanted this tournament that was going to be like the most special thing in golf. So, Bobby Jones, who was the biggest deal back then, um, he was the amateur who never turned pro. He then won the calendar Grand Slam, which is basically the four majors in those days, all in the same year. And the age of 28, he promptly retired from golf. Because back then, if you were a professional golfer, you were seen as a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a hood rat, a bit of a, a shifty guy, you know, like a gambler, like, um, you know, just like kind of lower class. Like the, the true honor was being an amateur golfer. Um, so Bobby Jones would never ever turn pro. Oh, that was for the common people. And golf kind of, yeah, that was, that's how it all started with this tournament. 
but getting back to that Clifford Roberts, when he committed suicide at the age of 80-something, he had, like, cancer and he wasn't going to go very far. Um, but he shot himself next to one of the lakes uh, on the par 3 course because he knew, uh, this was freshly after getting a haircut, he knew that if he killed himself there, there would be minimal cleanup for the staff and in no way would it compromise the aesthetics of the golf course. So basically he shot himself in the head with a gun that was powerful enough to do the job but not so much that it would create a spectacle. And then he literally just dribbled out into the lake. And there he is. He's dead in the property. But that's a whole different story. There's so many different stories to this Masters. I think next year, I'm actually going to dedicate the full hour just to the Masters. Because I've got lots of stories like that. And bring in some more interviews of people who have similar things to say. It's just a fascinating place. Because it was made for the purpose of being beautiful, brilliant, and fantastic. And uh going to Sunday's round, that's exactly what Jordan Spieth was looking to do. Be beautiful, fantastic, and just perfect, and win himself the back-to-back second wire-to-wire green jacket. But this is how his round went, though. An emotional Sunday for Jordan Spieth at the Masters. Tried to become the fourth man all-time to win back-to-back green jackets. Began the day with a one-shot lead. Get left. Get left. Get left. You're at the par five second. He would find the putting surface. That would lead to a two-putt birdie, and Spieth... Moves the four under par. Things really got going for him when he got to the par three sixth. This for birdie and a move to four under par. Center cut. The very next hole. Speed. His approach on seven. Listen to him talk. Don't be long. Don't be long. Don't be long. It wasn't long. It was perfect. Using the slope, that would roll back to three feet and speed. Rolling at the time to five under par and back-to-back birdies. The next hole, the par 5-8. He birdied this hole every day this week. This would be good for three straight birdies and the six under par. He would turn after this birdie at nine in 32. Seven under and a full five shot lead. But the disappointment at the 12th. Coming off back to back bogeys at 10 and 11. He would say after his round he had issues with these shots on the par threes all week. Into the water. It would get worse. Speed after a drop. He knew right away into the water again. He said after his round should have gone to the drop area. That would lead to a seven. He leaves that hole three back of Danny Willett, but on 13, a bounce back bird. He gets back to two under par. Then on 15, a must get as Danny Willett was finishing up at five under par. Speed. You gotta give him all the credit in the world as he would make another birdie to get to three under par. But a par at 16 and a bogey at 17 and his 2016 dreams would come to an end. On 18, he would finish with a par. And Jordan Spieth, a tie for second. Danny Willis, your Masters champ. And what can only be described as one of the saddest facial expressions ever, ever. This morning, I, I put a tweet out just documenting how Spieth went full proteas yesterday. And uh you got a feel for the young guy, so gifted and talented and ultimately hugely, hugely incredibly rich. You might not want to, but here here is a guy who he's played this this uh tournament twice, right? It's the first time you played it as a sort of unknown twenty year old guy. Everyone knew he was going to be huge, but he had nothing to kind of prove it just yet. He was twenty. He went to the Masters. He he basically should have won it. Like Bubba Watson basically capitalized on a few of his mistakes on that final round. The next year he goes there, he wins wire to wire, he shoots 18 under. He had 28 birdies that week. This year, not on his best, his, his game hasn't been the best, no doubt about it, but he gets to this course, he knows what to do, and it was just beautiful to watch it. It wasn't the most exciting Masters, I think when the wind gets up, the Augusta National layout just gets a little bit too difficult. The greens are a little bit childish, and like it's just a bit Mickey Mouse in ways that the guys simply can't birdie certain holes. Like You watched that fourth hole yesterday, that par three, you can't birdie that hole. 
it's just they might as well put a windmill short of that bunker and you've got to hit through the windmill it's just the most impossible hole some of those pin placements just make you like completely completely lose all composure but here it was it was a final sunday it was a great sunday and jordan spieth who would have thought five shot lead after making a birdie at nine but then he went and dropped two shots as he was doing this danny willett was suddenly coming to coming together he was at a f- absolute flawless 67 on his final round to become a major champion for the first time unfortunately it will be a major that will be seen as spieth throwing it away but when you actually look at it, when you shoot 67 with no bogeys in the final day of a, of a major, you are very much a major champion. And the fact that he was in contention and got himself in position just proves it. He was world number 12 going into this event. So it's not like he came out of nowhere and got a lucky break. Now the world number one, sorry, <laughs> world number nine, Danny Willis a real deal. I mean, this is a guy that took Roy McIlroy right to the end last year in the European Order of Merit. He's a good player. And even though this was his, I think, his second time playing this tournament, what an incredible champion he is in himself. With Spieth, he's a real, real class guy. He was the first to, um, to congratulate Willits, and he basically called it for what it was. He played really great in that day. But just so sad, Masters being what it is, that the defending champion has to give the new champion the jacket. So there was Spieth essentially holding the jacket that was his after nine holes. <laughs> Here's a guy that everyone was writing the tournament off. You lead by five after you've made a birdie. After you've made four birdies in a row, you lead by five. Nobody knew that he would go to the 12th. I mean, bogeying 10, 11, there's no shame in that. They're tough holes. But making a 7 on the par 3, 12th, one of the best wedge players in the world. He went to and dropped his ball where he knew he could just dial it in. And he duffed it like a like a hacker on at the driving range on a Sunday. He just chunked it terribly. The thing just made the water hazard. <laughs> it was just horrible. But that is golf, and that is something that will make him a greater champion, I feel. Yeah, he could easily have won this thing yesterday and still gone out to be real, real great. But here's a guy who's now got real adversity that he's got to deal with now. Right now, he's thinking, I should be in New York City. I should be doing all the talk shows. I should have won this. I should have done that. Me, me, me. It's impossible not to think that way because you've got to be single-minded as a champion. So he's going to be going through all of that. He's going to be dealing with all of it at the moment. And the next time he tees it up, everyone's going to ask the question, how are you doing? Have you got over the master's loss just yet? These journalists aren't very imaginative people. They will ask him this right up until he plays the U.S. Open. They'll ask him this all the way through until he plays the Ryder Cup. Have you dealt with um, the Augusta disappointment yet? Can you imagine if Spieth gets drawn with Danny Willett in the Ryder Cup? Everyone is going to have this huge thing about this being a revenge match, how Jordan wants to get it back over Danny Willett. He's got tough times ahead. And uh, it'll, just throw, it'll, just, it'll grow him into a much better player as well, I think. You know? The whole thing about you can't um, you can't be a diamond unless you're going to get buffed up or whatever. There's a saying, it's a whole monkey card, but yeah, that's what it means to him. So, a um, bit of a disappointing week for the South Africans. If you go onto the today right now on the homepage, I wrote something about Ernie Els over the weekend. I felt like I couldn't hold back. What an incredible guy. Um, he's been such an amazing golfer for so many years. He's been at the top of the game for so long. Kind of dedicated his entire life to the game, and here he was being reduced to a quivering mess with a putter in his hand on the very first hole of this year's tournament. It was something that obviously people jumped in the bandwagon of and social media being what it is. There was a fair amount of ridicule being thrown around. But you talk about the composure that Jordan Spieth's going to grow into after this loss. For only to have to go through that with the eyes of the world on him and the fact that he still went and finished that round and he he came back the next day. He said when he got to the, the course on Friday, it felt like he was walking around with no pants on. Everyone was just looking at him in a certain way. They weren't sure whether to talk to him. They weren't sure if they should make eye contact, nothing. Because he's six-putter from like three feet. It's like golf just really is the greatest leveler of all sports. And if you're on a big golf fan and you feel like I have gone along a bit too much on this, you've got against tournaments like this to really understand it. It's such a great game. And there's a reason why that golf course is just packed with people who are paying thousands of dollars, not rands, not ruples, whatever. They're paying thousands upon thousands of dollars to be there, to watch that and the that, that spectacle. It's a really great thing. And long may it, long may it persist. Other highlights on the weekend was Gary Player's Holy One uh, at the age of 80 on the par 3 course. Louis Taylor's Holy One yesterday. I uh, retweeted Golf Digest um, about an hour ago and you can actually see how this, this Holy One goes. It's one of the craziest Holy Ones you've ever seen. So those are the only real highlights, unfortunately, for the essay contingency. Uh, Louis Taylor was the only one that made the cut. Um, but yeah, there's always next year. And now... This does mean the Ryder Cup's going to have extra spice because if an English guy wins it for the first time in 17 years, the, the Masters, 
They're now going to get a lot more momentum going into September's Ryder Cup. But that is enough. I think I've talked golf to the ground. Um, and if you're not a golf fan, I do apologize. But it's just, it's a special time of year for the sport. And as true to form, there it is. One of the most incredible Sundays on at the Masters. Unfortunately, one of the worst meltdowns since Greg Norman. So next up, we've got Dan from Conquer Sport. He is in studio with me right now. And we're talking speed. We're talking sprinting. We're talking dynamics of performance. So what better way to kind of intro that than with the man of speed himself, the greatest. Now, Dan, as you've seen, that is in German. Yes. Um, I liked I like my speed being spoken about in German. They have the autobahn, and um, yeah, sorry, there you go. Hello, hi, yeah, Dan, I, I like it in German. Nine five eight. So when you speak about speed, the first person you think of is Usain Bolt. Not a doubt about it. He's twenty nine at this year's Olympics, which means he's got one more chance of ultimate glory. He won the double, the hundred meter, the two hundred meter. In uh, Beijing, he then followed it up in Rio. Sorry, in London, and now he's in the mix to do it in Rio. Then, so where do I start? Because um, if we talk speed, like people have done tests on this dude, they've studied everything about him. He's a complete freak of nature. Um, I hope this segues beautifully into what you what you want to talk about today. Because for me, I, out of all the sporting stars in the world, I am most fascinated about him. And I think. I think a lot of people are, and I think one of the reasons why is because he is just a freak, and, and we look at the sky and we think that there's absolutely no ways that anyone will ever be able to run faster than that. It's so true, because and, when you look at look at him for the last sort of eight years, and you look how he's beaten people, mm. he's finished the race looking around and celebrating. Right. He hasn't had to hard... I mean, his last word at the World Champs, he ever, um, he really had to come back. I mean, mm. the, you can see the guy's form wasn't there. And that was a hard, almost ugly win in his standards. Yeah. But he still did it. But he still did it. He still, there was, there was still no doubt about it actually come, come race time. Right. So, so, and then, and then that kind of leads to the, that, that standard, you know, that age old question of like, will we ever be able to see someone who, to run, who can run faster than a Sane Bolt? And, you know, conventional wisdom says that no, that this, this is the absolute pinnacle. And that kind of inspired me to write this article because when you look back at the history of athletics and, and any sort of athletic capabilities, that definitive line of what's considered impossible and what's, you know, achievable is constantly shifting. I mean, in 1954, when Roger Bannister ran the, the, the mile in under four minutes, that was considered an, an impossible feat. When, when Jim Hines in 1968 ran the 100 meters in under 10 seconds, that was considered impossible. So when you look at the same bolt now and we think that there's absolutely no ways that anyone can run faster than this guy, well, maybe we should change that perception and maybe we should think that no one can run faster than right now. But history shows that we're we're constantly improving and constantly getting better. Oh, sure. I mean, every time you get around at the Olympics, they show you these great infographics of where the 100 meters has got to. Mm. I mean, if you look at the early 1900s, in like 10 seconds, it was like, never, never, yeah, exactly. never ever, 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 ever. Exactly. Now, if you're not breaking 10 seconds, you're not really at the Olympics. Mm. Uh, same goes for that, that mile. Um, I read a book back when I was, I mean, this stuff fascinates me. So I always try things in sport because I don't like just watching and drinking beer anymore. You've got to <laughs> take it further. I actually started training for the mile. So I read this amazing book about Roger Bannister's life. Uh, I read up about the fact that during his time, there was him, there was this Aussie guy called Landy and some American college kid. And they were all vying for the same thing. They wanted to be the first guy to break the the barrier, the mm. four-minute mile. And it's just crazy what these guys went through. So I was doing the same training while reading this book. Okay. And realizing how bloody difficult that that's... Did you do it? Uh, no, I kind of... Um, uh, what was it called? I tore something in my knee. Uh, anyway, that's not important. Right. I, I generally break down in life, unfortunately. Fair enough. I, I'm not made of which strong is, which stuff. Which is why you're chatting about it. Which is why I'm here talking yeah. about it. I haven't actually broken the four-minute mile. Um, my point was, 
that's the mile record now i think is what three minutes 43 yes yeah it's uh it's it's 343 exactly by a moroccan guy yeah hicham el girush yeah i butchered that name i apologize oh you did it right so um when this was happening the third american guy he was he was the youngest and he was like a real fiery character he was the best america had but this landy was actually the best runner Okay. And he, but he was obsessed with it. He was completely obsessed with it. He was part of this, um, Australian school where they had this like camp of these like Spartan runners. And these guys would run stupid distances at all times of night. Even Landy, when he had a day job, he would wake up at like three in the morning and he would just do speed training and he would run great distances, be home by five and then go do work and then in the evening again and do the same thing. Wow. So he was completely obsessed. Bannister wasn't though. He was just clever about it because he was a doctor and he was in medical school. He went about this very differently. But Landy's times were getting better and better and better, but he could never get the four minute mark, right? Bannister was running less, but then suddenly on that one day, that faithful day on the 6th of May, he did it. Right. So Landy was, I mean, he was spending months in like Scandinavian countries because they felt that the air was just right and the conditions would be just right for him to do it. So 6th of May, Bannister breaks it. 21st of June. So Bannister ran a nine, sorry, a 359.4, right? Mm. And that was it. The, the mile was broken. Right. Landy thought, ah, oh, fuck. I've been doing this for, for years and this guy beats me to it. What does he run? Three minutes 57. Wow. Now, I'm sure you're going to get into it now, but these small margins, I mean, that's daylight. And that, that really is just, right. that's, that's a thrashing of a time that Landy was. They're two seconds better. Okay. I mean, at the Empire Games, Bannister beat Landy in a head to head. So he'll always be seen as a better runner. Mm. But the fact is, the psychological boundary like that, it's it's just so difficult to kind of quantify, but it's so real. Right, and 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 that's and that's kind of what what I what I get into in this in this article. I mean, I, I chat to a guy whose name's Lance Walker. He's the global director of performance at the Michael Johnson Performance Center in Texas, and. We, we, we talk about all the physiological ways that you can, you can improve sprinting. I mean, any, anyone can get faster. Sure. Even on the day, if, uh, starting techniques, uh, potentiating different muscles with weight training, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, speed training is, is quite a, is quite a known variable, I suppose. But what was very interesting is that he says that the next frontier of speed training, and I suppose any athletic development, is what happens above the neck in the, in the brain. Yeah. And, um, he actually says that he's scared to think of where we can go because if Hussein Bolt's running, running the times he's running and, and as you say, Bannister was running the, the times that he was running and et cetera, and all, all the guys that are running now, that's happening all below the body with, with improved equipment, nutrition, training, et cetera. But if we can unlock the potential of the brain and remove those psychological barriers that we know impact performance, what sort of capabilities will these guys be putting out? I was going to take you back a step there because a lot of people just believe, um, you know, I've, I've gone through these things. Like I find the best training. Everyone be in the best shape of your life, become a sprinter. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing, I've got one of the speed shoots I'm going to start playing around with. <laughs> no, I'm taking this very seriously. Okay. I'll, I'll write more about it. I was going to take you back a bit just to the actual, to what a hundred meter race is. Um, this is Michael, Michael Johnson who we're talking about today. The 100 meters. We like to talk about 100 meters as being in phases. The explosive start. Then there's the drive phase. Head down, keeping low, allows the buildup of speed. Pushing out the track with the toes. Arms pumping back and forth. Use for body strength. It's all about acceleration. The stride phase. Now you're approaching maximum velocity. Head in line with the spine, relaxed, elbows at 90 degrees, stride extended, the classic high knee lift. If it's close, you'll need to lean for the line. 100 meter sprinters are powerful, of course, and generally not too tall as height and long limbs have long been regarded as a major disadvantage in the early phases of the race. But not too short either, as a good stride length is an advantage in that final sprint for the line. So that's just kind of physically what the 100-minute breaks down to, right? Now, what you're you're talking about here is that anyone can kind of get to that level where you're going to have 
the le- the lever's doing the right sort of thing. You've got the fast twitch muscles that are firing with the right amount of uh, power and pace and endurance that needed for that. You're not really breathing a whole bunch here. That lactic acid's building up hard. Mm. So many guys have gotten to the position where they tick the boxes for that. What you're suggesting is that progress is now going to come from, like you say, above the neck, which then brings me on to a show that I'm watching at the moment called Limitless. Yeah. Now, the NZT pull. Right. And talk about how you literally can do anything. But what's the future, though? I mean, how do, can people train for this? Yes. I, so, is it about aligning these things and just understanding them better? I think I think to understand what, what, what we're kind of talking about, it, it makes sense in a sport like golf or cricket where where your psychological barriers or in sk- any skills-based uh, sport where psychological barriers and, and, and mental blocks – Directly impact performance, and, that, and we and we understand we understand what that means. We understand how choking and yes, we South Africans do know that exactly. <laughs> but it it doesn't quite make sense for us in a, a purely physiological sport. I mean, in a hundred meters, there's only one way to beat your opposition, which is to run faster. So you would think that it's it's less psychological. But studies have shown that that the psychological barriers involved in in purely physiological sports are as much of a factor as they are in skill based sports. Um, there's a thing called the NFL Combine, which is um, before the NFL draft, a whole bunch of college students gather together and they basically strip them down. And there's no cheerleaders and there's no crowds and they, they have to perform certain tasks. One of those tasks is the 40-yard dash. And now this guy, Darren McFadden, who's now running back for the Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys, he worked with Lance Walker and the Michael Johnson Performance Center and he ran a ridiculous time in his 40-yard dash. I can't... Uh, I can't quite find it, but it was, it was the third fastest of all time. And then he phoned Lance and he, and he was like, wow, you know, I can't believe I did that. And Lance was like, oh, well, you know, how were you feeling while you're running? And Darren said that he doesn't remember running. He, he, he has no recollection of, of like an out of body trance state. It, it was it, exactly it, it, Lance calls it a, a subcortical state where, where his body was just moving in a way that he wasn't thinking about. And now, because he knew how fast he could run, his second race, he added uh, 0.2 sec, uh, you know, 0.2 seconds to his time, which over 40 yard dash is quite a lot. And the reason being is because now he was thinking about it. Yeah. So if we take, if we take that same philosophy and, and apply it to, to any sort of training, we can see that there, there's empirical evidence that shows that the brain does get in the way of the body. And if you can remove that barrier, then there's no telling how far you can go. So. Yeah, it's fair to say that Carlos Brathwaite was swinging a cricket bat. He wasn't trying to hit sixes. Right, exactly. <laughs> he, he, he just he just looks so fluid. I mean, I mean, when you see when you see when you see Lionel Messi kind of like you know slaloming uh, slaloming through through uh, through defenders, he's hardly thinking about it, is he? He's just he's just kind of going through the motions. No, it just looks like he's back in as a as a kid. Same thing with same thing with sprinting. Same thing with with. Uh, with throwing a javelin, same thing with high jumping. If if you can if you can tap into that subcortical state, the uh, the body's ability to kind of negate the brain's obstacles potentially um, could could see people breaking a Saint Bolt's record and could see people smashing records that we thought were impossible. Sure, but now just going back to that sort of the actual dynamics of of a, of a human being mm. now. I know that like the mental thing, we're talking about shaving things here. What would you believe would be realistic in 10 years time? I mean, it's a bit of a guess for both of us. Yeah. yeah. What would you realistically think that a hundred meter time could be in 10 years time? Oh, look, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm hardly a, a sprinter <laughs> and, uh, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't really well, understand. If you, if you just look at the history, right? We spoke about the fact that the 10 second was a barrier. No one ever thought we could get it. Then it went to 9.8, that it was 9.7. Yeah. 9.58 is what it's been now for what's eight years? Look, I, th- I think, I think as, as, as time goes on, the record will get broken, but, but the, the differences between each record being broken will be so tiny. It'll be 0.1 of a second the next time, 0.1 of a second the next time, maybe 0.001, you know, so, it, because because the margins are, are getting so much smaller, I think they will keep getting broken, but it, it will you know the 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 curve will kind of regress to almost a straight line. I think. Yeah, I guess it but, is, but never but never actually reaching a straight line. I never think but, we but, will but get but never to stop. It'll always yeah. okay, because that's how I see it now. I think the big strides are all done. Now mm-hmm. it literally is just the little increments that are still going to have progress, but not a big thing. Right. Which gets us into two things, Dan. Two th- questions that need to be asked. Um. I didn't want to take the chat here, 
but okay. unfortunately it will when you talk about performance and human excellence. Yeah. Is the modification of performance enhancers. Yeah. Now I'm not just talking about the illegal ones. I'm also talking about the legal ones, as you say, like how you position yourself and your training, all that kind of stuff. Yes. But the stakes getting higher and higher and you need to make, you need to break world records to become known as the best and do all these kind of things and to make money ultimately. Mm. I think it's going to open up a whole new level of, of drug, drug cheating. Secondly though, and this is maybe a slightly more ambitious, perhaps more left field way is just genetic, um, grouping. Yeah. Now, if you are say, bad example, Marion Jones, right? And you are say, you're saying Bolt, good example. Yeah. They should have a child. Well, if they had children and similar things happened, then I reckon we've got a better chance of going 930. And you know, that's, that's actually been done before. That, that, I, I can't think of his name offhand, but that Chinese, gig, that Chinese basketball, basketball player, player, he is the product of, of, of selected breeding. Yeah. I'm sure we spoke about selected breeding a yes, while back. Yeah, we yeah. did. So, so it, it makes complete sense that, that, uh, that selective breeding will breed super athletes. I mean, just, just the natural selection, 0.01% of the population, let's say, constitute the the best athletes on the planet they're just going to get better because they're going to breed and 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 natural selection is going to kind of take its course so just from a purely natural selection point of view athletes are going to be getting better Mm. but but you touched on on something interesting about the uh about the illegal drugs and obviously we know that drugs are illegal but when we start talking about the unlocking the the limits of the human brain there's going to be a point where where certain practices are going to be deemed illegal and certain practices are going to be kind of the gray area that's between what is what is ethical and what isn't. Um, Michael Johnson Performance Center have now partnered with this company called Halo Neuroscience. Okay. And what they do is they they basically put headphones on. I don't understand exactly how it works because I haven't done it and, they, and they're quite secretive about it. But essentially what it does is called neuropriming. And what that is is it sends pulses of energy that increase excitability of motor neurons which increase your strength and your and your and your skill acquisition, and it's shown that vertical jumps have increased by fifteen percent. Um, lifting weights has increased by fifteen percent. Skills acquisition have increased by something like twenty percent, and, and the ability to learn new skills. And if you apply that to athletic ability, it's unlocking these things in the brain that that were inhibiting you before. So, when it comes to the ethics of unlocking the limits of the, of the human brain, I think. Not this Olympics, maybe not the next one, but certainly within our lifetime, we're going to get a thing where the ethics of, of performance enhancement will be with the drugs you take and what you do in the brain. Yeah, because you can't get away from the fact that drugs, I mean, resident Dr. Jonathan Witt's just saying, brains, shmames, get the drugs in there. So anyhow, you're going to beat 9-6. <laughs> but like the show, Limitless, I mean, we talk about inhibitions, right? Your NFL example there. Mm. The guy ran... He achieved. It was amazing. Yeah. He was then he he was then boxing himself into thinking, "I'm going to try that little bit harder. I'm right. going to do this because I need to do this because that's going to be difficult. Whatever." Mm. Ran slower. If we can somehow engineer, again, I don't know if this will be legal or not. If we can engineer a drug that will give us the same effects of being drunk without the <laughs> physical limitations of being drunk, right? Because that's all that's all booze is, right? Mm. I mean, how many times have we been at places and agreed to stupid things like? Running the Comrade, no, okay, that's a bad example. Like running the Two Oceans or riding the Argus or 94.7 after just being boozed with your mates at a bri. For because, me, none. Okay, I've well, never agreed to do any of those things, but I hear see, what you're saying. because you're smart, Dan. Yeah. This is why I have you here. Right. So if you could have the, inhibi- the inhibitions taken away pre-race, right, without having a bar rash mm-hmm. or having just feeling like you've had six beers, we need to make this drug. I know it goes back into that whole limitless kind of sphere. Yeah. But if we can have an... See, I'm losing what the word is here. Inhibition and, and um, annihilator. Yeah, we can create that. There's, there's, I think, half a second. See, and, and but that, but that's that's the thing that they were saying is that it's not necessarily a drug that we'll have to take now. We're going to be able to tap into the human brain, and and through operant conditioning, we're going to be able to figure out of, of tapping into a, a particular wavelength or a particular state of of mind where where I'm standing on at the start of my 40 yard dash and I'm not thinking about what I need to do with my arms I'm not thinking about how I need to clear my legs to to get my start going I'm just going back to that that neuropriming so yeah. that I can but the thing is like as humans we're weak though suddenly we're in a stadium and we just lose I mean look Bolt has been so good because he channels all that and he goes well 
I also think physically, getting back to our selected breeding thing, mm. he is a very different kind of sprinter because he's 6'5". Yeah. Your usual sprinter is about 5'10". Right. So what you're saying is that if we can get someone who's genetically superior like Bolt, who can zone into such a way that his inhibitions are annihilated through a zen-like brain process, yes. this is the blueprint for the best sprinter. And that sounds great, right? But I mean, we're, still, so we, we're still dealing in, in the realm of science fiction here. But, uh, you know, to, to if you look at history... Everything's been, uh, everything's kind of been rewritten and, re- and, and changed and, and it seems really that we, that we're at the point now where we are on the verge of something, of something very new and very exciting. And, and if, if, if we can unlock the, the limits of the human brain, as you say, you know, the, the, the possibilities are limitless. They really are. Well, then, unfortunately, we have run out of time, but this is a fascinating topic. I'd like to bring us to bring up later on. Like I said, I'm going to start doing some sprint training at the moment because I've got one of the speed shoots. There is a really great um, documentary you must try to find. Michael Johnson goes to Jamaica because he wants to find out what makes these Jamaicans tick and why they're so good at okay. sprinting. You've got to try to find it. I'm not too sure where it is. I've forgotten what it's called now, but it's an actual documentary, and it ties into a lot of the things that Dan's been saying. And you get to see this institute that Michael Johnson's created for speed. I mean, he, he teaches everyone here. Huh? Marathon runners. And marathon runners. Is your footballers. Sport. But I mean, even, even table tennis players yeah. go there and, and, and practice their speed. I mean, if, if, as you say, if, if all things are considered and you've got athlete A and athlete B, you'd always want the faster athletes. Always. Always. You always want, you want a faster prop. You want a faster, every, speed is, is like the crack for sports. You need right. it in every single facet. You want a faster bowler. You want a faster moving spinner. You, everything must be faster. Exactly. A boxer, whatever the case may be. If, if you can, if you can increase foot speed and increase the, the, the high outputs mm-hmm. on an athlete, it translates to everything else in, in speed. And that's why this guy has created a, a speed factory, which yeah. is a global clearinghouse for speed development. It's great. If I had lots of money, I'd start one too. So, Dan, that's all we've got time for for this week. Uh, just give a good plug to what we can and where we can find you. It's been a long time since we featured your articles. Yeah, great, great to be back. But uh, you can find us on conquersport.com. That's C-O-N-Q-A, sport. Um, we also got Twitter, at conquersport, and on Facebook. And you can find me at Daniel Gallen. It's G-A-L-L-A-N. Brilliant, Daniel. Thanks for coming back. It's been great to have a, a high-level sports conversation. I've just been churning crap for the last six weeks. I've been enjoying it. But that was T20 cricket, I guess. You know, yeah, that's, what, what, that's what it is. Yeah. So catch us back. The podcast will be available on the Bounce.co.za in an hour from now if you're listening live. If you're listening to the podcast, well done. You found it already. That's very good. It's like talking future talk. Wow, it's getting too much in my brain now. Anyway, the Bounce Show back next week. And uh, do go on to the Bounce of Seattle today right now. There are some interesting articles there. And, of course, it's the aftermath of the Masters where Daniel Willett is the new champion. Whoever would have thought it? I didn't, but here he is. This is CliffCentral.com.